because we've got some work to do tonight. Uh, this is a tricky passage in Galatians. Uh, I was going to say I've wrestled with it this week. It's more like it's beaten me up this week uh, as I've thought about it. So it's going to be an exercise of uh, loving the Lord our God with all our minds as we put our minds to work to understand his words. Uh, but also remembering the principle that the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. So keeping our eye out for what is really clear, what is key as we read Galatians 3. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll read uh, this section of Galatians together. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gift of your Holy Spirit. uh, That he not only inspired this word, but tonight illuminates it for us uh, to bring us uh, clarity on it, uh, to bring conviction from it. And we pray too that he would even bring conversion tonight, that he would be transforming our hearts. Uh, Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Galatians chapter 3 Uh, on page 1170, if you've got one of the church Bibles, and we'll read from verses 15 to 25. Brothers, uh, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. See, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is God's word. Now, one of the reasons why... uh, At first reading, this appears quite complex, is because we find ourselves bang in the middle of Paul's argument. He has been building his case for the last chapter to make one point, and he's been hammering and hammering that point home, because he really wants us to understand this one thing. And tonight, 
he doesn't really progress that argument. He just steps a little bit to the side to look at it from another angle. And from this other perspective, he proves his point. Now, what is his point? Come back with me to chapter 2, verse 16. If we could have the next slide, Mr. Robertson. Here's his point in chapter 2, verse 16. And he makes the same point three times in this verse. A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Do you see his point three times there? How are we justified? Not by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. Not by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. Not by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. Do you see that? Um, Now, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be uh, made righteous? Well, that is the language of Galatians, of the Bible, of coming into a right legal standing with God. How does God count someone righteous who is clearly unrighteous? How is it that we can be made right with God? That language of justifying is actually already in our vocabulary. You know when you use a word document? We left justify something. We bring it to the left, up to the line. Or we right justify. We bring it up to the line. So this language of justification, how does God bring us up to his standard? when we so obviously fall short. And Paul's point, did you see over and over again, not by the law, not by the law, not by the law, but how? By faith, by faith, by faith. And he wants to hammer this point home. We see this in Galatians 3 as well. Follow with me some verses uh, to see point, uh, Paul's point repeated. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Halfway through, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing? Verse 5. Does God give you a Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe? Verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed. Verse 7. Understand then that those who believe. Verse 8. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Verse 9. So those who have Faith. Uh, Look on to verse 11. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 14. Who redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith. You get his point? Can't miss it, can you? By faith, by faith, by faith, by believing, by believing, by believing. Uh, You cannot miss Paul's point. How are we brought up to the standard of God's law? How does God count us as righteous? Not by observing the law, not by doing things, but by faith. And last week we saw an example, an illustration. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Here's your illustration. Consider Abraham. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's your example, Abraham. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now that means not only that Abraham sinned, he was a sinner, not only that his sin was taken away, but actually he was gifted the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, when we are made right with God, it is not just a negative thing that our sins are removed, that our dirty clothing is removed. There is a positive aspect to it. We are gifted the perfect righteousness of Christ. We put on his perfection. It is not only a curse removed, but positively a blessing given. Now, tonight, Paul makes that point again. Okay, He's going to make that point again. And let me, before we get into it, let me illustrate or explain how he does it. He's going to do it tonight by means of chronology, by use of timing. Uh, you could say he confronts the false teachers who are saying you are justified by the law almost just by looking at a calendar. What he does is survey the story of God's uh, workings in history. And he says, as we look at the timeline of history, this is going to prove to you the point that justification being made righteous is not by the law, but by faith. It's a matter of timing, when things happen. So I don't if he took out a calendar, maybe it was his Cliff Richard calendar that he took out and took these fall teachers to it and said, let me show you by timings, by chronology, by salvation history, redemptive history. Uh, that's what Paul is going to use this evening. And he uses the chronology of this story to prove that justification is not by observing the law, but by faith. Now the reason on the screen there are these kind of triangles, mountains, is because uh, John Stott says this, commenting on these verses. In eight short verses, Paul spans about 2,000 years, and he surveys practically the whole Old Testament language, and he presents it like a mountain range whose highest peaks are Abraham and Moses, and whose Everest is Christ. So what we're going to do with Paul this, morning, uh, this evening is to trace the timeline of the Bible to prove Paul's point, seeing these mountain peaks, Abraham, Moses and the law, and then Christ as the Everest. Does that make sense? Are you with? It's important that you're with me so far. We cannot go any further unless you see this. Please nod or shake your heads. I'm taking that as a shake, a nodding of the head. So let's go to his first point, and I want us to focus on one verse here, verse 18, and even just one phrase. If we could go into the next slides, God in His grace gave it to Abraham through promise. Now Paul Pitt takes us to the start of the storyline of the Bible. We read it earlier on. Where God gives a promise to Abraham. And the significant thing that we heard in that, in that it was not a law where God said, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. Instead God said, I will do this. I will give you this. I will bless you. Did you notice that? He does not come with a law saying, you must. He comes with a promise and says, I will. The words there are, that are significant are grace and gave. Grace means that it is undeserved. Gave means that it is an unearned gift. 
This is not something that is earned by observing a law. It is something that is graciously given by God. And he gives to Abraham this promise. Now read verse 16 with me of chapter 3. Because this is really significant in understanding the story of the Bible. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people. But and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now there Paul draws a line from the promise to Abraham, from the top of mountain peak number one, to the top of the Everest, that is Jesus. From the start of this story, that only makes sense as we understand the climax of this story in Jesus Christ. You only understand the promise given to Abraham as we understand that this is a promise that is going to find its fulfillment hundreds and hundreds of years later in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he dies on a cross. The promise to Abraham was a promise about Jesus. The promise that Abraham believed was a belief in Abraham in Jesus. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How was Abraham made right with God? Well, he believed the promise that anticipated Jesus. Abraham, a sinner, how can he be brought up to the line? Well, only as he looks forward in anticipation to where Jesus would die on a cross and Abraham's sin would become Jesus' sin. Abraham's curse would become Jesus' curse. And where Jesus' righteousness would be gifted to Abraham. And Jesus' death would be Abraham's redemption. Do you see that? A direct line from Abraham believing this promise to the person of Jesus, the Everest. How is someone made right with God? They believe God's promise as it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, do you get that? Do you see that? Because Paul's not said anything new yet. He's saying the same thing again. But here's where he makes his point. Have a look at verse 17. Here's his proof that justification is by the promise, not the law. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years Later, Now stop there. Here's the chronology. Here's the Cliff Richard calendar coming out. If the law is given 430 years after the promise, that means that justification is not by the law. Why? Because if Abraham was justified before the law was given, justification cannot be by the law. Do you see that? When did Abraham, when was Abraham credited as righteous by God? 430 years before the law was given. So is justification by the law, can it be by the law? No, because the law wasn't even in existence when Abraham was credited as righteous. There are 430 Cliff Richard calendars that testify to the fact that justification is not by the law. Because it comes after. Uh, let me try and illustrate this. 
If I was chatting to you after the service and we're having a coffee and I start reminiscing about uh, my memories from World War I and telling you about my time in the trenches and uh, the adventures into no man's land and uh, all my kind of comrades who died in battle. Now, you'd, you'd be looking at me and saying, right, at best this guy is about 14, 15 years old. Uh, maybe 25 if he's honest. But uh, there is no way that he was around in World War I. No danger. The chronology negates my point. In the same way, justification cannot be by the law if Abraham was justified 430 years before the law came into being. Do you see, it's really clever what Paul does. It's really simple. Just look at a calendar. Just look at the time. 430 years. If Abraham was justified 430 years before the law came, justification cannot be by the law. That's why he uses this human illustration from everyday life in verse 15. Well, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. That's what he says in the end of verse 17. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Paul's point is the promise has prominence. The promise has priority. The promise has preeminence over the law. And the law that comes later does not negate, does not set aside how God justifies his people by belief in the promise about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It does not set aside. There are 430 years of evidence of Abraham and his sons and their sons and their sons being justified by God. Now let's pause and try and apply some of these things before we move on. Uh, Some very simple things. Uh, This shows us the importance of reading the storyline of Scripture. Uh, Maybe you're new to Christianity, maybe just working it out, maybe the Bible seems really hard work. Well, the Bible is not like an encyclopedia where you can just dip in and read things in isolation. It's not just a kind of book of proverbial wisdom where you can just hope to find something that will be applicable to today. Uh, You need to understand that it is a, a progressively revealing story that only makes sense when you understand the Everest that is Jesus Christ. Um, And so you really need to try and uh, work out and learn this storyline of Scripture. Everything that leads up to Jesus and then everything flows from him. Um, A great book to read is God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Just a short book uh, that will be really helpful if you're just setting off in the Christian life to tell you this storyline of God's drama in history. Uh, Another application then is it is helpful to see that we are not the hero of every Bible story. We are not center stage in history. The world does not revolve around us. Uh, God has been working out his plan and his purposes long before you existed. And his plans and his purposes far exceed just you. Uh, This should humble us. Uh, It gives us dignity in that we can find our place in the story, but it demands humility. Because I I am not the hero. I am not the Everest. But everything is 
pointing to and leading from the center person in human history that is Jesus Christ. And the gospel, which we'll come to soon, is showing us how we can amazingly be wrapped up in that story of what God is doing in history. Now, another application, mainly to those of us who are Christians. I hope you can find great assurance in these verses. Um, It is not an uncommon Christian experience to really struggle with despair, anxiety, and doubt. Am I really saved? Will I meet God's standard? Has, Has he accepted my faith? Is my repentance enough? And we can really struggle with assurance. Um, But you see the, the amazing truth of this passage. What God has promised cannot be set aside, will not be revoked. But his promises for those who believe in Jesus, they shall be right with him. He is faithful to his promise. His promise stands. So when, when racked with doubt, when covered in despair, what is the thing to do? Don't look within and say, am I obeying? Am I doing this? Am I not doing that? No, look out. Look out to the faithful God who makes a faithful promise and who has fulfilled it already in the person of Jesus Christ. Look out. Uh, there's great assurance to be found in his faithfulness and the sure nature of that promise that has already been fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Let me read. I don't know if any of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan uh, writes a kind of allegory, a simile of the Christian life. And Bunyan was a man who for years was racked with doubt. And so in this part of the story, the main character, Christian, and a friend, Hopeful, find themselves... Uh, in a place called Doubting Castle. So the allegory is, this is when the Christian finds himself really struggling with doubt. And the giant is called Giant Despair, who owns this castle. You've got to read the book, it's brilliant. Giant Despair locks them in the dungeon of uh, Doubting Castle. So here's a Christian, doubting, despairing. And they've been locked up for days, and the giant is threatening to tear them limb from limb. It's a great story, you must read it. But... Eventually, Christian says this, What a fool am I to be lying in this stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try the dungeon door, whose bolt gave back and the door flew open with ease. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard. And with this key opened the door also. After he went into the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. They were thrust open the gates and made their escape with speed. Do you see the imagery? What is the hope? What is the assurance for the Christian when in Doubting Castle? When giant despair is pressing upon you, the promise. The promise of God and his faithfulness that those who believe in Jesus shall find salvation, will be counted righteous by God. Uh, Dear Christian friends, hold on to that promise as the only thing that can liberate us from Doubting Castle, from giant despair.
uh, we must move on. Um, the next two sections of this passage are two questions, two objections that are raised. Um, Paul raises these objections as the things that logically come to mind when he says this truth about the law coming later. Have a look in verse 19. If we can go on to the next slide, Andrew. And again. Here's the first question in verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? That is the logical question to ask. If the law is not the means of being right with God, what purpose does it serve? Well, he answers it. Uh, Rob, if you could put the slide up in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. The point here, I think, is the same point that Paul makes in Romans 3. In Romans 3, he says, uh, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What is the purpose of the law? It is to make us conscious of sin. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, says it this way. It is to underline the existence and the extent of sin. Why did God introduce his law 430 years later? It was to make sin known. That men might be uh, compelled to acknowledge their guilt. To make plain the sinfulness of sin. What's the purpose of the law? To make sin known to bring it out into the open. Martin Luther says it this way. The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That's to say it shows them their sin that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. The law was not given to redeem, but as we see in verse 22, it was given to imprison. The law was not given to set free, but as we see from verse 23, it was given to lock us up. So when we read, thou shalt not, it is there to show us that we have disobeyed. When it says, you should not lie, the commandment is there to show us that we have lied. When it says, do not commit adultery, it is there to show us that we are idolaters. When it says, do not covet, it is there to show to us plainly that we are those who have coveted. That is the purpose of the law. To show us that we have not obeyed. That we do fall far short. See, the law was not the remedy. The law was not the cure. The law was not the prescription. Uh, The law, if you like, was only the thermometer. Imagine you went to the doctor's tomorrow with some kind of illness. And he wrote out a prescription for you. And on it, it said, here's a thermometer. For the next two weeks, take your temperature twice daily. Useless. Absolutely useless. Why? The thermometer is not a prescription. It is not a remedy. It is not a cure. What does it do? Tells you you're ill. Great, thanks. The law is like the thermometer. It is not a cure for someone who has fallen short of God's standard. What is it? All it does, it tells us that we're sick. It tells us that we are not well, that we are not right with God. Now, do you see, therefore, the 
perversity of these false teachers in Galatians. They're using the law for the exact opposite reason for why God gave it. They're saying the law is here to save you. You must do this to be right with God. And Paul says the purpose of the law is the exact opposite. It's to show you that you are a sinner. To show you that you have not kept God's standards. These guys have not only mistaken the chronology of God's story, but they've missed and completely understood the purpose of his law. Do you notice as well in this, he stresses the temporary nature of the law. He's hammering this point home. The law was given, was added. That means it had a beginning after the promise. It is given until the seed to whom the promise referred has come. Not only has a beginning, but it has an end. These guys are completely missing the point. Justification is not by the law. It is by belief in the promise. All the law does is show us that we're locked up, imprisoned to our sin. Now, how do we apply this? Uh, A couple of ways. If you're not a Christian, um, it is really important that you understand the purpose of things like the Ten Commandments. I guess they're often held up as, oh, well, they're still useful for society to add this kind of moral standard for people to live to. They're helpful in some way. It's good that people don't lie. Uh, If you're using the Ten Commandments in that way, you're completely missing the point. They're not there as a kind of moral standard to live to. They're there to lock you up. They're there to show you that you are a lawbreaker. Christianity is not about doing this and doing that or not doing this. The law is telling us that we have not, and so we are locked up, imprisoned under God's standard. Now, to those of us who are Christians, I think there's an application here too in, in terms of how we fight sin. I think often when it comes to battling against lust or battling against addiction or battling against pride, we can try and put kind of laws uh, to hem us in, to stop us from doing certain things. But the law is powerless to change us. That's using laws for the wrong purpose, the purpose that God did not give them to us for. Um, One writer said it this way, I think this is quite helpful. The law is like a cage. If it has bars, it can keep a lion from eating a lamb, but it cannot prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. See that? If it's a matter of changing our hearts, the law is powerless to do that. It cannot change my wants. We need something better, something more powerful. It takes the gospel to transform my heart so that I do not want to eat the lamb use that illustration and we're going to come to that power shortly Um, but things like the law they're not they're not powerful enough i think that's the point in verse 20 end of verse 19 and 20 this thing about the law being put into effect through angels by a mediator a mediator however does not represent just one party but god is one now the first commentator i read this week said there were over 300 interpretations to that verse now when you read that you want to cry 
But I think the point of this mediated law is the fact that it comes not directly from God to the people, but it comes kind of third party through angels, through Moses, then to the people. The point is, the law does not come with the power of God. Um, God does not come with the law to grant us the power to obey it. The law only imprisons us because we have not. What's the difference of the promise? God comes as the one true God directly to Abraham. And with his power gives the promise that says, if you believe this, you will be made righteous. I think that's what that verse is about. Um, But again, we're seeing the bankruptcy of the law to help us in terms of being made right with God. Now let's get, keep going on to the good news. The next question that Paul raises is in verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Now that's another natural question. Uh, how do the law and the promise then relate? Are they opposed to one another? Well, hypothetically, Paul says in verse 22, if the law could justify, if the law could bring life, then they would be opposed That would mean there were two ways to God. You could either go through the promise or you could go by observing the law. Paul says absolutely not. Uh, They are not opposed. But in God's story, these things work together. Uh, They just play different roles. For two reasons. Have a look firstly at verse 22. The scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, this law preserves salvation as a gift of God. Uh, If salvation cannot be by the law, if I'm imprisoned, unable to do anything for myself, it means that it must be of God's grace, undeserved. It must be of his gift, unearned. And so it must be to his glory, not my boasting. That is one of the ways the law and the promise work together. It preserves salvation, justification as God's work alone, not me. But secondly, here's the important one. It is put in charge, verse 24, to lead us to Christ. By showing us the bankruptcy of human efforts, it shuts men and women up to the point where they can say, my only hope is Jesus. When it imprisons us, it shows that the only escape is the Savior provided in the person of Jesus Christ. That is how the law and the promise operate together. The the law shows us that we are not good in ourselves. And yet in doing that, it drives us to see our need for a Savior. It drives us to see our need for for the promise. John Calvin wonderfully says, whenever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, there is help provided for us in Christ. The law, in short, was an immense variety of exercises in which the worshippers were led by the hand to Christ. Isn't that a great image? As the law shows me how far short I have fallen, it leads me by the hand to show me the Savior. It leads me to the point where I see Jesus hanging on the cross, uh, dying under the curse that a lawbreaker deserves. It leads me by the hand to the cross to see Jesus redeeming the enslaved prisoner. 
saying this is the place where Jesus transfers someone from being a slave to a son, from a prisoner to a freedom, from someone who is under the supervision of the law to someone who is under the fatherhoods of God. The law leads us to put our faith in Christ. Now, if we're Christians, uh, this is really important if we, as we think about evangelism. Because we must tell all of God's story as we seek to speak to our non-Christian friends. We cannot shrink from bringing them up to God's law. It is important that they are bruised by the law so that they long for the bam of the gospel. It is important that they see how far they have fallen short, that they might cry out for a savior. It is vital that they are seeing that they are deserving of hell before they see their need to be raised by Christ to heaven. It is vital that they see that they are unrighteous, that they might long for the righteousness of Jesus. The law plays a significant part as we seek to share Christ with our non-Christian friends. Unless they see the purpose of the law to imprison us, to uh, place shackles on us as sinners, they will never see the need of Christ as the one through his cross who takes the curse that they deserve that he might set them free. Now what if you're not a Christian? If you are under the impression that Christianity is just about observing certain things and doing certain things and attaining to certain standards, please see you've missed the very purpose of God's law. It is not a ladder to climb to being right with God. But it is more like the snake and snakes and ladders that brings you down to the dust and says, you need a savior. And if you're under the impression that the life you're living at the moment is one of freedom, you need to see that actually sin enslaves. Anyone who has known the addiction of alcohol knows that uh, to live your life for anything uh, enslaves you. I was chatting to a man this morning after the service who was visibly nervous about the Man City Man United game tomorrow night because he knew that the day after at work would be an absolute nightmare if the result went the wrong way. How sad to have football enslave your thoughts on a Sunday night for a Tuesday morning. Do you see how living for anything other than Jesus enslaves you? Now, for you, it might not be alcohol, it might not be football, but whatever you are living for in some way enslaves. It dominates, it dictates everything from emotions to behaviors. And sin not only traps us in its own snare, but it also means that we are deserving of God's curse and of hell. Please see the glory of the good good news of Christianity, where Jesus not only removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, dying in our place on the cross, but he gives to us his righteousness that we might be perfect in him. Justification is not by the law. It is not by the law. It is not by the law. It is by believing in the promise in the Everest who is Christ who has done everything necessary 
for our salvation. If you're not a Christian, maybe tonight is the night to say, do you know what? I acknowledge that I am imprisoned under the law. I confess that I am a lawbreaker. And to place your faith, your belief, your trust in Jesus as the one who can bring freedom. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have acted in history, that you have been purposing and planning and fulfilling your story in a way to lead us to Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in him. We thank you for showing us our sin. And yet we thank you so much that you did not leave us in prison, but you show us the Savior, and you lead us to the one who bore our curse and who gifts us his righteousness. We thank you. We praise you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.